Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Well, this should be a really interesting morning for you. Um, I came down with a really nasty cold at the end of the week. And I've discovered that this cold completely affects your brain. And you don't want to do anything. And you can't think clear. And last night I stood there with that big bottle of Theraflu uh, right by the bathroom sink. And I said, I wonder if I should take this or not. I'll, either I'll sleep better because this is supposed to last for 24 hours. And I'm wondering what I'm going to be like in the morning. And I just have to tell you, it really does affect you. Um, I started first service and I got done with my introduction, and I just stood there. <laughs> and then I looked at my notes, and I still couldn't understand, what was I going to say? And I was completely lost. It was a complete and total mess. Uh, so what I tried to do is, I'm really thankful we have that full high-test coffee at the coffee bar. So I tried to counteract it with a, cup, a couple cups of high-test Plus, we have a chiropractor uh, in the church who was able to work on me between services, and now I can actually breathe a little bit. That being said, who knows what's going to happen in the next 35 minutes. So just hold on. It may be something you want to remember. So let's just dive right in. <coughs> None of us like tests. Isn't that true? Uh, oh, I don't like them because when I was in school, I was up late into the, into the night studying for tests. Tests produce an incredible amount of stress in our life. We want to make sure we pass the tests. But the truth is that tests are actually a pretty important part of life. For instance, if you are a high school kid, you know about this little tiny test called the ACT. You guys ever heard of that? Like, it determines your future. If you do well on it, you get into college. If you don't do well on it, you're probably not going. You do well on it, it could mean thousands of dollars in scholarship money. So it is very important that you take tests seriously, which I should have learned many years ago. Because one of the most embarrassing things that can happen to you is not to take a test seriously and then discover you fail what should be a completely easy test. This is what happened to me. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey. I had a New Jersey driver's license, but when I was working on my master's program, I had moved to Pennsylvania, and as part of that, I realized I needed to get a, a Pennsylvania driver's license. Now, I remember taking the test for the New Jersey one in high school when I was 15. It couldn't be that hard, and I was very busy in school. At the time, I was in the, the upper-level Greek and Hebrew courses plus a full you know, thing of theology, so I am studying nonstop, trying to get the best possible grades I could while I was working on my master's program. And I took, my, took the driver's book, thought I'd study it. You know how you never really, it never rises to the top of the priority list? And then that day came when I had to go get my driver's test. And I figured, well, it can't be that hard. I've been driving for a number of years. Went and took my test. And boy, I couldn't have been more wrong. I think the lady, when I walked in the DMV, saw a young 20-something-year-old single guy. And she gave me the version of the test it has all these questions about alcohol on it. You guys remember this when you take your driver's test? How many glasses of wine is equivalent to how many glasses of beer? You remember that? We had it in our test, trust me. And, and, and here's the 
the deal. And that whole section of the, of the, of the driver's book, I never paid any attention to it because I don't drink. So I failed my test miserably, which I felt really bad about because here were guys who could barely speak English walking out with their driver's license right in front of me, and I was relatively fluent in four languages, and I still couldn't get my driver's license. So, you know, just a reminder that the importance of tests, and we need to take them seriously. Now, while we may not like tests, they play an important role in everyone's life. For instance, if you go to the doctor, how would you like to go to a doctor who had never had to take a test in med school? Would you want him to operate on you? No, because you, if he took a test and he did well in the test, you, he knows his stuff. How would you like to get in a plane and fly with a pilot who had never taken a test in flight school? I'm not getting on that plane because the tests would prove the truth to prove what you need to know if they're up to speed. Now, this morning, we're going to look at the life of Joseph. And Joseph, as we continue to study him, you're going to see that he is going to put his brothers through a series of tests. And some of these tests have been going on, and there's a really big one we're going to look at today. And you need to understand that when we look at Joseph putting his brothers through tests, this isn't all bad. This is actually sort of a, a good thing. It's an, ex an acceptable thing. In fact, you need to know that just like Joseph, if you are in a relationship with somebody and they sin against you mightily, that you may need to test them over time. Let me give you an example. Maybe the best way to put it is this. As Christians, do we forgive people quickly? We should. Right? We should forgive quickly because if we don't forgive, we become mean-spirited, we become bitter, we become hard-hearted. We should forgive as we've been forgiven. But does that necessarily mean we want to trust somebody right away? Not necessarily. Thank you, right, Tom. Say your spouse has been unfaithful to you. Do you forgive them? Yes, we want to forgive as we have been forgiven. We want to forgive as quickly and as deeply as we, have been for, as we have been forgiven by Jesus. But does that mean you completely trust them right away? Uh, not maybe until time has passed and they've been tested and proven their faithfulness to you. Say you have a friend and you share confidences with your friend and share intimate things and struggles that are in your life and all of a sudden you struggle discover that they have gone around to other people and they have blabbed your confidences in a public way. And of course, you want to talk to them and you want to extend your forgiveness to them. But do you immediately go start sharing your confidence with, confidences with them right away again? No. See, as Christians, we want to be quick to forgive, but the truth is we need to be slow to trust. Because when people break your trust, it takes time to earn that trust back and we test them along the way to see if they have changed. And this is exactly what has been going on with Joseph and his brothers. I personally believe that Joseph has forgiven his brothers. It's difficult, it's hard, but he's forgiven them. But the big question that is in his mind is, have they changed? Are my brothers still the same scoundrels they were 22 years ago 
that if they were given the opportunity, they would sell their own flesh and blood into slavery to get rid of them. That's what he wants to know. And so he has been testing them to see if they've changed. Now, if you're new, let me get you up to speed on Joseph's story. When he was 17, um, he was the favored son of his father. And his father, I mean, blatantly favored him, gave him a special, you know, jacket, all this kind of stuff. And the other brothers, who were most of them, except for one, were older, they were sort of left out of the equation. And when the brothers had the opportunity, because they were a long way from home, they first wanted to kill Joseph, and later they ended up selling him into slavery instead. Now, what's happened when he went as a slave to Egypt is even though he started as a lowly slave at the bottom of the rung, God is sovereign over everything, and God graciously raised him up to be second in command over Egypt, the ultimate of rising up the corporate ladder. Now, God is also sovereign, not just over rising Joseph up in authority and power, but He is also sovereign over everything in creation. And there was a famine that God sovereignly ordained would be on the land. And it wasn't just on Egypt, but it extended all the way out to Canaan. And this famine and this shortage of food is what forced Joseph's brothers to go to Egypt in search of food. In fact, what happens is Joseph's brothers find themselves bowing before Joseph himself, asking for Joseph to be gracious and, and, and give them food. And here is where it gets interesting. Joseph recognized them, but they didn't recognize him. Now, why didn't Joseph just reveal his identity? It's that same thing we just said before. Are they just like they were before, or have they changed? The only way to really find out is if Joseph tests them to see if he can trust them. And so what has gone on is he's been putting a series of tests in their life. For instance, um, we saw that he put their money back in their sacks. What would they do with it? Would they return it? It's a test of honesty. Simeon, one of their brothers, ends up in prison. What would they do? Would they leave him there? Would they forget about him like they had done to Joseph and say, hey, if we lose a brother, it's no big deal. We're just going to move on. And ultimately, the biggest test of all is going to take place today. Joseph is all along been thinking of, I want Benjamin to come back to Egypt. Because when Benjamin comes here, I can do the ultimate test to find out the true nature of their heart. Have they changed? Now, we're going to pick up the story here in, in Genesis 43, verse 15. And by the way, we're going to be looking at, for the next few weeks as we continue the Genesis story, large pieces of text. And there's a couple reasons. One is because it doesn't divide up easily into small verses. Number two is because we want to get done by Christmas. So, Let's jump into the text. So the men took this present. And by the way, they're leaving to head to Egypt. And they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready 
for the men are to dine with me at noon. Well, the man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, well, it's because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and to seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house. And they said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks. And there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us. We have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. And he replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. And then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man who had brought the men into Joseph's house had given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when they had given their donkey's fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that he should eat bread there. <coughs> I just want to note one thing as we go through this particular section of the text. I just think it's interesting because as soon as Joseph goes to bring them in this house, what are they thinking, positive or negative things? Negative things. They're thinking, oh no, Joseph is going to make us as slaves and steal our donkeys. I'm like, are you guys crazy? Joseph is the second most powerful person in the world. Like he really is doing this to steal your donkeys. Do you see a problem? That's like going to eat at Trump's house and thinking, well, he's invited me over so he can steal my used Honda Civic. I mean, <laughs> honestly, this makes no sense. Why are they thinking this way? You and I know that when you are living with a guilty conscience, every single thing you start to double think, don't you? Any good thing that comes into your life, oh, this is a setup, it's going to fall apart, I know it. Any bad thing that comes into your life, well, I know this is just really getting what I deserve. This is what's going on. These guys have this guilty conscience, so they think they're going to dinner and it's just a big setup, so somebody can steal their Honda Civic, which makes no sense at all. The story continues. Then Joseph came home, and they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them, and they bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare. And he said, well, is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they said, your servant, our father, is well, and he is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. And he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother. And he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and he wept there. Then he washed his face and he came out. In controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. 
because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Let me just give you a couple of interesting pieces of information here. Uh, first of all, you need to understand a little bit of the culture. In this culture, when somebody would have you over their house and they would give you this kind of meal, it wasn't like we would do it in our culture. You know how you have somebody over your house just to be social and to be hospitable, but once they walk out the door, everyone goes, boy, am I thankful they're gone. That, that, that's only happened in our family. <laughs> okay, I got you on that. <laughs> no, the, the point is, in this culture, when you would have somebody over for this kind of a meal, this is a way of saying they come under your protection. It was a way of saying that they are, so to speak, on your side because there is a huge meal that goes on here. It's just a cultural thing. And what is happening is they are being welcomed as family by the second most powerful person in the world. That's important. The other thing to notice is they soon start to su suspect something funky is going on because they are, put, they are seated according to birth order. Now, that may not sound like much of a problem when kids are about that big. But how old are they? 40s, 50s, you know, somewhere around there. And remember, they are all born by three different women. They don't look alike. Some of those women were pregnant with kids at the same time. So not even born nine months apart. And yet somebody knew properly how to seat them according to birth order. Isn't that interesting? Another interesting piece. It's a little side note in here, but it's cool. You notice it says here, but the Egyptians did not eat with them, and the Egyptians ate by themselves. Very important. Where they are currently living in Canaan, they have the Canaanites. We've talked about those earlier in the study. The Canaanites are very comfortable with mixing their culture with other cultures. And that's why, it, so far through Genesis, there's been a real emphasis on when these men of God get a wife, they were to marry someone, a woman, who was part of the covenant family. Remember all the Abraham going all the way back, to, to going back to where Laban was, and Isaac, all the details of marrying the right woman. Because you can't marry a Canaanite woman because she would take your children far from Christ, and they are very um, wicked and evil. We know that. But God is about to take, in a few chapters, there will be 70 of the people in the family and move them into Egypt. And Egypt is a different culture. Egypt does not want to culturally mingle. They are very proud What's going to happen is God is going to bring His people to the land of Goshen, which is a great land, and they're going to be, so to speak, protected by the Egyptians, but allowed to grow right in Egypt without having the Egyptians intermarry with them. Isn't that interesting? 
So that's how they're going to grow to a great nation and yet not be absorbed by the Egyptian nation at the same time. You can see that beginning right here in the text. Another interesting piece of here is Benjamin. Benjamin gets a dinner meal that is five times larger than anybody else. Now, I don't know exactly what a dinner meal looks like that's five times larger because my plate is always filled. So I got to thinking about this, you know, how much more food is this? And I, the way I could think about it was Papa Murphy's. See, we had Papa Murphy's uh, on Friday night. By the way, I highly recommend the chicken bacon artichoke. That was good. You, is that, anybody else had that? Yes? Thank you. Yeah, maybe I'd get a kickback for sending some business their way. I don't know. Uh, but we had a, one of those family size, and I eat single-handedly about half of a family size pizza when I'm hungry. That's like from empty to full. That's what I'll do. And I thought, okay, I know everybody in, in this seating arrangement has a full plate. Except for Benjamin has five times as much. So if I eat half a pie, that means Benjamin would have two and a half family size pizzas all to himself. It's a lot of food. Now, why did Joseph make sure that happened? It's all about these tests. Remember, he's testing them to see if they've changed. Joseph, up to this point, has been speaking through an interpreter. But does Joseph understand Hebrew? Who do you think is watching to see what they say and when they do when two and a half chicken bacon artichoke pizzas show up in Benjamin's plate? Joseph, he's seeing if they're showing faith, if they're reacting again the same old way they would act to him when he was given favoritism. Another interesting piece. It's uh, the last piece here. It says, and they drank and were merry with him. If you look at the ESV study Bible, you see a little footnote there. What does mean merry? It means literally they were intoxicated. Now, this is not an example to follow, by the way. It doesn't mean go drink and get drunk. But this is important. Joseph wanted them to overdrink so they would have a fuzzy memory of how things transpired on this evening. Why? Let's continue reading. You'll see exactly why. Then he commended the steward of his house. <coughs> Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. As, and he did as Joseph told him. And as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. And now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You've done evil in doing this. And when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought it back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold right from my Lord's house? I mean, whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, well, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant. 
and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. At the first light of dawn, you can picture them heading out. And I picture them talking about the amazing party they had the night before. and The graciousness of this second-in-command person in Egypt that he extended to them. And also picture Simeon probably explained to his brothers why he had too much to drink and threw up in the potted plant. They hadn't gone too far. When they were out of town, there was a chariot with flashing lights that eh, pulled them over and accused them of having uh, taken the cup of Joseph, the cup of divination. Now, by the way, some people get lost on this one. They're like, Oh, does this mean that Joseph practiced divination? Does this mean that Joseph like read tea leaves and did tarot cards? No, it doesn't mean that. Joseph is trying to play the part of an Egyptian pagan high official, right? And as part of playing the part, you have to look the part. So he says, hey, it's the cup of divination that I use. The guys come back and say, like, why would we steal the cup? I mean, come on, we're the guys that brought back the money that was in our sacks. We have no idea how it even got there. So we would bring it back to you. And of course, as the text says, the steward goes one by one through everyone's sack until the cup is found in Benjamin's sack. And all of them are going, well, I don't have really good recollection of the night. I had too much to drink, but I do not remember Benjamin taking that cup. But he's sort of stuck on it. Now, here is what you need to realize. What Joseph has done is he has set them up for the ultimate test, hasn't he? This is the whole reason he wanted Benjamin back to Egypt in the first place, so we could set this up. Just as Joseph was dad's favorite, so they sold him into slavery in Egypt, we learned last week that now Benjamin is dad's favorite. He's like little Joseph Jr. who's pampered and coddled. The question is, now that they have the opportunity to sell Benjamin into slavery in Egypt, and they have a really good excuse to get away with it, because Joseph stole the silver cup of the second most powerful man in Egypt. They could go home and say, Dad, Benjamin, you know that guy you always coddle over and say he's Mr. Wonderful? He's a thief. He was caught red-handed. Nothing we could do to save him, Dad. I'm sorry, we had to leave him there. What would they do? Because J Benjamin is completely framed. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground, and Joseph said to him, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice the divination? And Judah said, 
What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Now it's interesting here to look at Judah's response. He says here essentially, God has found us out. Now, is Judah and the rest of the brothers, are, are they guilty of stealing the cup? Yes or no? No. But Judah is confessing that he's guilty. What is he guilty of? Selling Joseph into slavery 22 years before. And what Joseph, or Judah is doing is he is confessing his guilt that he has kept hidden for 22 years right in front of Joseph's face. He says, no, we deserve to suffer. All of us deserve to suffer. Not Benjamin, not just Benjamin. And I look at the way he, he says things from here. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. Let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asks his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? We said to my Lord, Well, we have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. Now his brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children. and His father loves him. Well, then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, well, But the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Well, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to my servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when my father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, well, you know my wife bore me two sons. One left me and said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then, as his life is bound up with the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? 
I fear to see the evil that would find my father. That is an amazing speech by Judah. I want you to remember, since we've been consecutively studying through Genesis, who Judah is in the story and who he is of the brothers. Whose idea was it to sell Joseph into slavery in the first place? Judah. Who was part of the scheme to have the coat ripped up and covered in blood and to keep that lie running for 22 years? Judah. Judah was a man who had gone extremely far from God. Do you remember this? That when his father wouldn't stop mourning over the loss of Joseph, that Judah is the one who moved away from home he moved into a Canaanite neighborhood with his friend, a guy named Hira, and became sort of a party animal with Hira. Judah then went and married a Canaanite wife, exactly what you're not supposed to do. Judah had three children with her. Two of those three children were so evil that they were struck dead by God himself. Has Judah really gone far from God? Yes, he has gone far from God. Judah is the guy that after his wife died, about a week after his wife, he went out partying with his friend Hira, sheep shearing time, if you remember that. And he slept with a woman on the side of the road he thought was a prostitute. So the guy who's like sleeping with a prostitute a week after his wife dies, I'd call that pretty far from God, wouldn't you? But has he changed? God has worked in his life that he has changed radically and completely. Because not, he's no longer living away from home, but he's actually part of home. He's no longer far from his brothers, but he is a leader of his brothers. Instead of being the guy whose idea it was to sell his own flesh and blood into slavery, he is the guy that is willing to put his life on the line and become a slave so Benjamin won't. Isn't this amazing? Now here's the question for you. Can God change lives? Judah is one of the grand displays of God's amazing grace and His ability to change lives in the Old Testament. That's exactly what we see. And you know something? That would have never been seen unless Joseph tested him. Remember I said tests aren't always bad? Because tests reveal the truth about us. This test revealed the truth that God had radically changed Judah's life. Now, for the balance of our time, I want to give you a few practical tidbits here. Because not only uh, do we look at how Joseph tested his brothers, but I want to give you a few ways of how God tests us. Just a couple practical things. What do I need to know about God's test in my life? Number one, if I am a follower of Jesus, God will test me. It's just going to happen, guys. Just give me a second. Here we go. It says this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastises every son whom He receives. If you are a Christian, expect that you will go through times of trial, 
Expect that you will go through times when God is testing you. It's just part of what it means to be a son of God. The other thing to realize about God's tests is this. God's tests are designed to reveal who I am, not break what I have become. Isn't that what Joseph's tests were designed to do for his brothers? To reveal the truth of who they are. Now look what it says here in 1 Peter chapter 1, 6-7. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Just as gold is tested by fire that displays and proves that it's true, our faith will be tested. And our tests will reveal the genuineness of our walk with Christ. Because when we go through difficulties and trials, here is what happens. If you are a genuine Christian, you will run to God. If you are not a genuine Christian, what will trials do? You will run from God, and you'll become angry with Him. Chests reveal the truth. Number three, did you know God never puts me through a test or a trial that actually I can't pass? Now, most of us don't realize that, but look what it says here. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful who will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. A couple things. First of all, when we go through tests, realize that these are the same tests that are common to man. In other words, other people have gone through trials and difficulties very similar to you. And by relying upon Jesus Christ, they have been able to make it through. This is what I use whenever I go to a theme park. I don't know if you guys know this, but I cannot stand roller coasters. Honestly, I have no desire to go on them whatsoever. But usually when I'm there to the theme park, you know, everybody wants their pastor to go on the roller coaster, and they want to put me in the front car for some reason. I don't know why. And this is what I do, because everything in me revolts against it, and I go, I'm going to die. But I realize that as I'm watching it in line, there's probably been 150 to 200 people who have gone through the same roller coaster, and they've all lived. So if they can make it, I can make it. And that's the same way it is with tests and trials in life. You know, other people have been through very similar ones to you, and by relying on Jesus, they have made it, and you can make it too. The other thing it says here that's very important is to realize that God will also provide a way of escape when you're facing a parosmos, it says in Greek, which is a test or a trial. When you're going through hard times, you do not have to sin. God will always provide a way. Now, maybe it's a temptation that you're facing, a constant temptation. Maybe the answer is so simple, the way out is to just turn off the internet. Maybe the answer is just to get away from those friends, because those friends always lead you down the wrong path. It's sometimes the easy answers are the way of escape that God provides. It's not complex. Number four, God tests show me where I need to grow. When we don't pass a test that God has put in our life, how do we respond? Some people I've seen respond with complete despondency, complete brokenness, and they never seem to be able to right themselves like a ship that has been turned over. 
Here is what you do when you don't pass a test. That God, you say, God, please forgive me. You go to the Lord for mercy. You confess your sin to those you've sinned against. And then what you do is you ask God for more mercy and more strength, and you pick up and keep going. That's what you do. You know, you, the test showed you an area of your faith you need to grow in. Then focus on growing and focus on relying on Christ. Last one is this. God's tests never make sense until they're over. You know, wasn't that true with Joseph's brothers? They're like, why in the world did somebody put the money in the mouth of our sack? Makes no sense. Why did Benjamin end up with two and a half spinach artichoke bacon pizzas? Makes no sense to us. Why in the world did Benjamin end up with a silver cup? Made no sense when he was going through it. But after they went through it, then it made sense. You see, God's tests often don't make sense when we're looking through the windshield, but they make a lot better sense by the rearview mirror, don't they? So as you are going through tests and trials in life, a lot of times just face up to the fact, you know, God, they're going to say, I have no idea why you've allowed this to happen. It makes absolutely no sense to me. But I know that someday I'll look back on it and understand. Probably what's most amazing, though, of this text is this. Judah, he becomes the man who's willing to give up his life to save his brother from slavery and death. But who is the descendant of Judah? Do you know who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? Who did the exact same thing on the cross that Judah did this day? Jesus. Isn't that true? Jesus is the descendant right from the tribe of Judah who does the exact same thing, who gives his life in our place to save us from savory to sin and from eternal death. And you see the gospel right here forecasted in the life of Judah in the book of Genesis. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, first of all, I want to thank you for your amazing grace. Grace that would change a life, the life of Judah, from a man who was very hardcore far from you to a man who would give his own life for his brother. And Jesus, uh, I thank you that you change our lives as well. That as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a completely new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Thank you for transforming us. And secondly, Father, I thank you for the tests that you allow into our lives in your wisdom. Because it's unless we go through those tests that the truth of the change is often never seen. The change is never seen by us, and it's never seen by others. And the tests reveal that we have changed. So thank you for transforming us, and thank you for testing us. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.
This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.